Welcome to Michigan Opera Theater's Opera Here podcast. This is Andrea Scobie and Arthur White with Michigan Opera Theater. We are thrilled you have joined us today as we speak with two fantastic artists, both bass singers who have graced MOT stages in recent seasons. We are joined today by Morris Robinson and Alan Michael Jones. Just last week, we ended Black History Month, and many companies highlighted and celebrated the incredible contributions of African-American singers to this art form. Look at any U.S. opera company's webpage, Facebook, or Instagram account, and you will have seen tributes to Leontine Price, Martina Arroyo, Marian Anderson, Janae Bridges, Pretty Yende, Angel Blue, and many others. But it's less often that you hear about Black male singers of the past or present. So today we have invited two African-American basses, one Morris Robinson, as I mentioned earlier, at the height of his career, singing at the Metropolitan Opera and all the major opera houses of the world. Uh, The other, Alan Michael Jones, a dynamic and exciting young resident artist at the Minnesota Opera at the beginning of his career. We will ask them about great African-American male singers of the past and talk to them about the realities of being men of color in the opera world today. Morris Robinson and Alan Michael Jones, welcome to MOT's Opera Here podcast. We are so happy you have joined us. Now, I understand the two of you share a connection. You both hail from Atlanta, Georgia, and Morris, you had a hand in encouraging Alan Michael to pursue a career in opera. Can you both talk about your friendship and this mentorship? Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll go first. I, I remember getting a call from Alan Michael a few years ago. So what I, I think our first interaction was uh, he was doing a master class. Did, is that right? You sang for me on the yeah. master class, right? Yep, yep. Yeah. At, at Georgia State and I heard his, Yeah. At Georgia State. And I heard his voice and I was like, yo, this guy's really good and has a, has a future in this thing. And uh, we stayed in touch, you know, but we weren't talking on a daily basis. We don't do that now. But I do remember most distinctly the next time that we really had a good conversation was I think he came up to my house. We ran through some stuff and then he called me up and was like, hey, I'm just trying to figure out what to do. I'm sitting around this that, and the other. And I knew then that Stephen Lord had just contacted me looking for a young base for the Michigan program. And I was like, I got a guy for you. And I remember that happening. And that's that that to me was kind of the kickoff catalyst. Now, getting you interested in opera, I can't say I did that part, but I certainly you know, know that this, uh, when I, when I work with young people, I look for some intangible aspects of what they bring to the table. And part of that, Mm -hmm. part of those intangible aspects are attitude, obviously there's talent and aptitude, but attitude is the most important thing. And of everyone I knew this, this young guy had the best attitude and had a wonderful voice. And I knew that putting him in the right environment was going to do nothing but uh, capitulate him to the next level because he was going to do everything that was asked of him and he was going to work really hard. And that's so that's where I think I stepped into the to the picture and really just gave him an opportunity to go out and do the work himself. So I can't take any credit for that other than making a phone call and he wouldn't handle everything. And that's that's my part of it. So, yeah, (laughs) I I tell the story all the time, too. I was sitting down. I just came home from Atlanta Opera uh, Chorus uh, rehearsal. Um, And uh, no, actually, it was the day before I was sitting down eating ramen, watching TV on my couch. and. He called me and he was like, hey, man, what you, what you got going on? And I was like, oh, man, I'm just sitting down, chilling, eating, watching TV. He was like, no, man, what you got going on for the, like, for the, uh, for the rest of the year, for the upcoming year? I was like, I have no idea. I guess I might start doing, uh, teaching myself how to code because I was working on that. I was teaching them, um, trying to become like this front-end developer. 
and you told me about the position up at uh, a Michigan Opera. He was like, would you like to audition? I was like, heck yeah, shoot, let's do it. And, um, you know, I went up there, had a great audition. And I remember you telling me that uh, you asked around at Atlanta Opera, just, you know, how I was doing. You know, was I, was I, you know, all my P's and Q's up there before even calling me, you know, and I guess before even making that recommendation. So, yeah, like you said, it's just, um, you know, he, he, will, he will check to make sure that, you know, you are someone who's, who's honorable, you know, uh, to the art and, and to yourself. So, definitely. Well, you know, be, you know, it's like I talked to you about this before and I've talked to a lot of people about this. You know, when I walk out on stage, I put my brand on the line. And so it's my responsibility yeah. to be prepared and be ready to represent the level of excellence that the, the presenters are expecting, my audiences are expecting, my fans are expecting, but more, more importantly, I expect it myself. So before I mm-hmm. sign my name on the dotted line behind somebody, I'm going to do my due diligence just like I do with my, my, new, uh, my new thing that I do now, my new hobby of day trading. I want to do my due diligence to make sure I'm making the right investment. And you are worthy, man, because your attitude has always been great. And your talent speaks for itself. You guys hear this guy's speaking voice? It's me sound like Minnie Mouse. So, you know, <laughs> you, you know he's good. <laughs> well, selfishly for us at MOT, that was a great phone call, Alan Michael. <laughs> we loved having you with us. And uh, it was great to work with you um, uh, and to have you as a colleague for the time that you were here in Michigan. Indeed. Oh, yeah, definitely. How and when did each of you get bitten by the opera bug? What were your beginnings? I love Morrisville. Oh, you, you'll, you'll let me go. Thank you, sir. sir. I appreciate it. Uh, the young guy's going to let me go first. Well, the opera, bug, the opera bug didn't hit me until 30, actually. I, I was introduced to classical music in high school, and everyone knows my story, but I went to high school in Atlanta, just like he did, uh, the Northside School of Performing Arts. Did you go to Northside, too? Yeah, yeah. They they, uh, they renamed it to uh, North Atlanta. By North Atlanta. Like so he went 25,000 years after I did, but it was a school of the arts when I was there. And uh, I was the, the short, shortened version of the story is I was in the marching band and I wanted to play football and I knew that I couldn't be in the band and play football. So as soon as that football season was over with, I auditioned for the chorus and made it into the chorus full time so that I can quit the band and play football. So I that was my introduction to classical music because we did things like the Mozart Requiem and the Andrew Lord Weber Requiem and the Haydn's Creation. And I was part of the touring company. So I was always singing in high school. That's kind of how I, you know, it was my meal ticket for being at Northside, which allowed me to play football at Northside. I did not take a music scholarship coming out of college. And I didn't get back into music until age 30 when I auditioned for the New England Conservatory uh, weekend program. They took me into their opera program after hearing me sing the national anthem. And then I was doing a production with them and Sharon Daniels from Boston University. Uh, offered me a chance to audition for the Opera Institute. So I figured I'd audition for her. I uh, got into the Opera Institute after learning arias with a private teacher. And a few weeks after that, Stephen Lord heard me, the same Stephen Lord that we're talking about, uh, auditioned for the course of Boston Lyric Opera. He asked me to learn a part of the King and Aida, and he gave me the job of the King and Aida. So my introduction to opera was really quick. It was like drinking water out of a fire hydrant. And I started at the age of 30, and almost within weeks of starting study, I had a role at Boston Lyric Opera. Then he went on to take me to St. Louis and introduce me to Gailey Flip Nichols, who actually became the head of the Young Artist Department at the, at the Metropolitan Opera. And they took me in there and I did all my training at Boston University, Boston Lyric Opera and the Metropolitan Opera for a stretch of about six years straight. Two lessons a week, 
coaching diction languages style, just intense training for about six years. And at the end of that six years, I was 36 years old and I did my first Zarastro at the Metropolitan Opera. So, and I'd done many roles at the Met before then, but that was kind of, I jumped in there, you know, I was, I jumped out the fire into the skillet or out the skillet into the fire and I was in it full time from the very beginning. And that book kind of bit me while I was studying because I, I finally felt, felt like I found out what the Lord put me on earth to do because I carried this voice with me all the time, singing the national anthem and singing the Lord's Prayer at people's weddings, but not really understanding what I could do with this instrument. And it's like the light opened up and it was shown to me that this is exactly what your voice is here for. And so I've been using it for that ever since. So that's when it bit me. But the opera bug bit me. Um was when Morris sang at the, um, he did a recital at Ebenezer Baptist Church. And because not only did I see a guy who looked like me, but knowing his story, it's like, oh man, he's from the same part of town I'm from. I think he probably grew up maybe 10 minutes away from where I grew up. Uh, he went to the same high school. He was in sports, I was in sports. He chose music, I'm choosing music. And to see that, uh, such a similar voice of, I was like, wow, so polished and what my voice, if I did enough work with it, could, you know, if I'm lucky, you know, even get to his level one day was, was enough convincing that all I needed, you know, I was like, okay, I'm sold. All right, we'll try it out. And then that's where I was at Georgia State at the time. I was like, all right, let me just give this thing all, let me just be in all, be, be 100% in and see what happens. And if I fall on my face, then cool. I know it wasn't for me. Uh, but, you know, if I actually, you know, <laughs> have the audacity to be successful at this thing, then, you know, it'll be one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. Morris, I, I want to ask you, uh, when I think of great black singers of the past, I think of, you know, Roland Hayes and Todd Duncan and Jules Bledsoe, Robert McFerrin, William Warfield. Uh, but I really think of Paul Robeson when I think of you, because it seems like you guys share a lot of similarities. You both were All-American college football players, uh, both uh, fathers who were preachers. Uh, you took up the role of Joe in Showboat, uh, singing the famed Old Man River. Uh, what role has any has Robeson played uh, for you as you've made your way in this business? You know, our similarities are definitely there, there. but he was a Phi Beta Kappa. I was not that at all. But uh, what what role has he played? You know, just knowing his story and the similarities, even the similarities of our last name, I've always been compared to him because our voices are similar and he was a bass and he's a, a ball player. But what most importantly inspired me is that I feel as though I stand on his shoulders because we don't know how great Paul Robeson would have been had he been allowed to do what Morris Robinson is allowed to do. And Morris Robinson is probably only great because Paul Robeson did what he did and took it on the chin and was unable to do what I'm allowed to do. And, you know, the, the, I feel like it's my turn to carry that torch further because, you know, he did sing at Carnegie Hall, but he never sang at the Metropolitan Opera. I don't think he sang at any major opera house. In fact, he wasn't allowed to do much opera, if any at all. And because he was able to pave ways and people after him, like Simon Estes and George Shirley and, and all the sisters that sang, et cetera. <clears throat> and more recently, you know, people like Kevin Short and people like uh, Gordon Hawkins and, and, you know, Simon Estes and all those cats, you know, they, they came just before I did. So I think that everyone kind of laid the groundwork for me to pick up the torch and say, okay, it's your turn to get in the game, carry a ball to victory. And that's, 
you know, so they all have that influence on me that I challenge myself to not only live up to their uh, history of excellence, uh, but also to make sure that I represent their hard work and their efforts. And I take advantage of and treat with, with appreciation the opportunities that I have that a lot of people before me didn't have. So I, that is my challenge and that is my aim. And that is what motivates me about all those guys that came before me. Uh, Alan Michael, uh, you know, uh, as you began to seriously pursue this career uh, on the stage, did you find yourself looking uh, at any of these greats from the past, either seeking some sort of example or mentor? Yeah, I definitely did. Uh, looking at uh, some of the names that's already been mentioned, like Robert McCarran, William Warfield, uh, and uh, uh, rest in peace, Arthur Woodley, you know, uh, uh, I was he was I was supposed to meet him. I was looking forward to meet him at um, at MOT. And um, last year, wasn't he supposed to be at MOT last year? He was. Before, we were actually uh, rehearsing Champion uh, weeks before we had to yep. shut everything down due to the pandemic. Exactly. And I was like, man, his Lost in the Stars was just one of my favorites. And um, I was like, man, I'll actually get to meet you know uh, someone who. I went back and did homework on, and I listened to these people that I wanted to be like, uh, these artists I wanted to be like, um, you know, when I was 25, 26, you know, younger, uh, not knowing what opera was really about. You know, I was like, man, I did really actually get to meet them. Uh, but then I had, I had um, another production elsewhere too. So that, you know, we, I don't think we ever would have ran in the same uh, paths. But yeah, and of course uh, Simon Estes. Um, yeah, I, those those are those artists are somewhat the pillars of what my artistry should be moving forward when it comes to um, being a black opera singer, uh, especially now because as as I look back, uh, as they paved the way for so many of us just to be able to do what we do. And, you know, it's, it's nothing like paying homage to the ones who came before you. And, you know, I, I show Morris the, the utmost respect um, and any other great that came before him uh, because they made it possible so that I could be in this position. And now it's my time to you know, take that torch. Well, not necessarily right now, but one day it will be my time. So I could take that torch and hopefully inspire, you know, another generation of African-American singers and just give them an option, you know, because this wasn't an option growing up. And um, I think as we continue to grow, grow through this, this art form, I think it'll be a beautiful way of showing other kids of color that, you can also do this as well. And uh, that's something that leaned on me heavy for a long time and even still today. You know, as we talk about all of these trailblazers and as we think about the male singers of color who've made it to the major opera houses of the world, you know, Morris, you mentioned George Shirley and Simon Estes. We think also of Vincent Cole, um, more recently, Eric Owens, and of course, of you, Morris. But we have to acknowledge that the representation, um, the numbers are still so small. 
Did the challenges for black men on the operatic road to success give you any pause uh, as to your career path early on? You know, uh, so I was in the business world before I was in the opera world. And I was at a military academy before I did all that. And I was raised by my mom and dad in Southwest Atlanta. And along with those experiences came the absurd, um, the, the absurd understanding that, and I really learned this from my first sales manager at 3M, because I was having some issues. So first of all, the absurd reality was that your talent and your capabilities will always separate you from the pack and people respect that. Okay, that's absurd. So when I got to my first sales territory with 3M and I was working in Southern Virginia and I was making sales calls with these reps, one of my distributors, and I was closing deals at places like Philip Morris and Reynolds Metal and Defense Logistics Agency and World Bank. You know, I'm, I'm out making things happen, but I was running into some issues in the Southern Virginia Richmond area because I was working with people that, you know, weren't used to working with people that look like me. <clears throat> And I brought that to my manager's attention because he had gotten a phone call that I had not participated in the sales call that I had and that kind of thing. So we're on the, and he says to me, he says, you Morris, I know you're dealing with some stuff down there, but you're a smart guy. He says, I guarantee you, if you go in and show any businessman that I don't care what color I am, I can teach you how to make money. He says, they're going to look at you and they're not going to care if you're orange, green or purple. If you can make them money, they're going to listen to you. And I thought to myself that I have to have that same approach in this business world because opera is still a business. You know, I have to make sure that my artistry speaks well enough that people are going to ignore the fact <clears throat> that I might present an aesthetic aspect that they aren't normally uh, used to seeing. And that's kind of idiotic in terms, in, in some senses, but it's how I lived the first years of my being in this business. Now, so to answer your question, I never allowed that doubt to enter my mind. I thought they may not want to hire a black guy to sing this role, but when they hear me, they're going to have to hire a black guy to sing that role because I'm going to sing the hell out of it. So, you know, that was my mindset. And my mindset has always been as a black, whatever, doctor, dentist, lawyer, fireman, policeman, whatever. I've always been taught from early age, you got to be way, way better than the competition just to be seen as equal. And so I always make sure that that's why I talked to you, Alan. That's why I said you never want to get caught overexposed. You always want to make sure you're prepared. You always want to be professional. You always want to check off every box. And that goes back to my athletic career. Anytime I lined up in front of somebody on a Saturday in college, <clears throat> because it happened to me a lot in high school, but in college, if I ever got my butt kicked physically, which I never did, I would always revert back to that one day I didn't work out hard enough, that one workout I skipped, that one day I should have been running, but I was drinking with my buddies. I had that same attitude when it came to opera. I was never going to find myself in a position where I should have taken one more day and gone over this Italian. I should have worked on my memory a little bit more because now I'm stuck here and I can't do anything about it. It's that drive. It's that, that, that desire to make sure that you cover all the bases that you can cover. And you check off every box that you can. You control the things you can control so that nothing else can take that away from you. And if it doesn't work out for you then, at least you can know you gave your best effort. So I never looked at this thinking, oh my God, this ain't gonna work out for me. I looked at this thinking, I'm gonna change a lot of people's minds because I'm gonna be the most prepared, the most ready, the most entertaining, the best I can possibly be. And if 
that's got to be good enough. If it's not, then it's just not meant for me. So it's a different approach, but that's just how I've always been. Can I ask this, Morris, uh, kind of on top of that, and also Ellen Michael, uh, you talk about what uh, some uh, black folks call as the black tax. I have to show up and be, uh, you know, better prepared uh, to hopefully be half as appreciated. Uh, do you? How do you keep from having animosity about maybe this this additional burden that you have to carry? Because I look at people like Simon Esses and George Shirley, and uh, you know, Glantine Price, and and everybody else that came before me, and thought I'm doing this in 2019, 2020, 2001, 2002. I'm not even doing this in 19, 20, 19, 30. So I have nothing to complain about. You know, I'm, it's my job to be this good no matter what. You know, that's just a habit. I, I learned something a long time ago. Excellence is a habit. It's not a result. It's a habit. And it's my job to be excellent. So I don't resent any of that. You know, I'm going to be the best I can be, whether you want me to be the best I can be, whether it takes that or not, I'm going to be the best I can be. So, no, nah, it's a habit. This is just how it works. I was just, you know, I, anyway, that's, that's my part of it. So love that answer. Yeah. Alan, Michael, I, anything to I add agree. to that? I agree. I agree. I mean, even from, I guess my generation now, um, I, I didn't see that. I didn't see, uh, the, the small number of black people in, in opera as cause to pause. Once I decided I wanted to do it. Um, I saw it as an opportunity and, um, an opportunity to be great at something because, you know, how my grandparents raised me from, from day one, the mindset was to be the best that you can be, literally, that you can be. And I personally feel that my best, my best is, is really good. It's really hard to be, you know, as long as I stay true to that. And like what Moore said, you know, you never want to get, there were times I was on stage and, uh, well, maybe not on stage. I'm going to get that far. But there was times of like rehearsal, you know, or I might have a coaching. And it's like, mm, dang, I should have, you know what? I should have looked over this one more time, just one more time, just so I can feel that more comfortable about it. I'm never unprepared, but my 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 status or my expectations that I have for myself are even higher. The uh, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion are certainly not new ones for our business as well as our society. Uh, but it does seem to me uh, with the murder of George Floyd this past year in particular has shown a new light on this issue and inequality. We've even seen you know, businesses and non-for-profits really trying to step up and respond. Uh, what do you make of some of these efforts uh, being made, Morris? Yeah, the, uh, okay, well, I'm gonna be as honest as I can. There's a lot going on right now. I'm actually in the middle of chatting with uh, the Black Opera Alliance over here because, you know, they have their way of doing things and, and that kind of thing. But let me just talk about what you're saying. What has happened? What, what caused it? First of all, seeing what we saw, we've seen it. We've seen guys run away from the cops and get shot. We've seen guys get shot in the streets in Georgia. We saw my man in Wisconsin get shot in the back. You know, we saw all this other stuff happening. People just did not want to believe that this was a result of, bad cops, bad mentality, racism. They didn't want to believe it. But when you watch somebody kneel on somebody's throat for nine minutes and just do it for nine minutes and the whole world saw it, that was a mind change. That was a game changer. Now, what has happened as a result of that? Everybody wants to get on the right side of the fence. Everybody wants to make sure that they're doing the right thing. Everyone really wants, and I believe that, the, I believe that 99% of it is sincere. What I don't like is, the knee-jerk reaction aspect of what people tend to do. 
You know, we have companies that say, oh, my God, I want to make sure I'm doing things right. You know, help me write the statement. Oh, my God, I want to. This has been happening and it's called a knee jerk reaction rather than looking at the real problem and saying we systematically need to change our mindset and make a whole new approach to this whole thing. I had that very famous Zoom call, which I wasn't expecting to be famous, where we're talking about the opera world and racial diversity and inclusion and equity. And I made the statement that I've never been hired by, conducted by, directed by a black person. I've never seen a president of a board, blah, blah, blah. I've never had any of it because at the time I hadn't worked at MOT, which has the only black general manager, well, none of the two. But I made that statement and the opera world went, oh my God, he's right. And it's a shame that that's the case, but that's what happened. So, you know, trying to affect change, I was called upon lots to be the person because I'm, you know, you know, when you are, and you probably know this as well as I do, when you are the resident black guy for most people that don't interact with you a lot, with black people a lot, you happen to be the expert on everything black. So opera companies knew I was vocal and they knew I could write well. So they're all calling me for a matter of opinion or does this statement sound right? Or we want to make sure we're doing the right thing by the book, you know? And I just felt like other than my life experiences and the skin that I wear and growing up in Georgia, I'm not an expert on this whole thing. So I enrolled in a course at Cornell University to try to learn officially what this science is all about, diversity and inclusion, and trying to make sure I equip myself better so I can be more of a resource to our business. So the change, I think, has been a you know an unfortunate incident for a lot of Black people that have been killed, but it's been a great impact in making people rethink the way they do business, the way we do casting, the way we do hiring, the way we do our representation. I think it's been a good catalyst, but my fear is you know this uh, situational outrage and situational attempt at trying to make things better will eventually fizzle out. And business will be back as usual, and we can't allow that to happen. So that's how I feel about that whole thing. Wow, Alan Michael, do you want to weigh in as well? Now is always better than later. You know, I can't, I can't put anybody on the on the chopping block for not doing this sooner. You know, that's not the issue. Uh, I think the the most important part is that we are starting starting to make more strides towards doing what's best uh, for all humans involved and in opera and around the world, just being a regular human being. So um, I think that it's unfortunate that we had to see the video of George Floyd lose his life in order for us to get to this point to now that we have conversations about this to see how we can move forward. It's unfortunate that that current event had to happen for us to get to the place that we are. But now that we are here, it's about what we do with it. And um, I think if we just treat this, uh, this process um, as a precious moment um, so that we can all have these conversations, of course, but we need to know how to move forward efficiently um, or we're going to actually make changes in this world. Great. Let me piggyback on what you're saying. You know, as companies are now beginning to invite more diverse voices, uh, you know, around this table, as well as changing cultures and systems, which have per perhaps may have stood in the way of this uh, uh, equity and inclusion. Uh, how do we do a better job of inviting communities, which may have not felt invited in the past? Morris, do you want to weigh in on that? Well, you know, I mean, you know, there, there are lots of uh, the ways that Lots of strategic ways that I see that we can do that, making people from other communities feel welcome. First of all, I think you have to put a diverse product on stage, right? People are attracted to that which with they're familiar and they're comfortable around that which with they're familiar. 
the opera world can be very intimidating. It can be, uh, you know, to those who aren't initiated, it can be very intimidating because it comes across as something only meant for the aristocracy. So we first have to make sure that we make people feel comfortable by putting something on stage that they want to come and see. Uh, secondly, once they get there, you know, once you put a product out that's going to sell to multiple communities, and you do that by marketing the diversity that you put on stage. And how do you do that? Well, you need diversity in your marketing department because, you know, different layers of culture know how to communicate to different layers of culture. So, you know, all these things need to come into place. And then what really importantly was one of the companies I've worked with, Cincinnati, a genius idea came up. And it's like, once you get people in the, in the house, in the seats, you got to make sure you make them feel comfortable too, because, you know, no one wants to feel bad about wearing a polo shirt and blue jeans to the opera. In fact, we should embrace them when they show up that way because they're filling up a seat and they're here to participate in the art form. You know, Mozart wrote years ago when he wrote uh, The Magic Flute, or was it Abduction from the Seraglio? He said, opera is for everybody. And it's for the common man. It should be sung in a language that the audience can communicate, which is why he wrote operas in not just German, but also in Italian. And, and, and so, you know, it's a communicative aspect of communicating stories to an audience base that wants to hear these stories. And we, in addition to just the languages, we need to also make sure that the stories we're telling are relevant to, to diverse communities. So, you know, there are lots of different things we can do to help fix that issue. And I, I look forward to taking a part in this with the companies in which I work and all, and seeing that this develops across our country because it needs to happen. I believe that opera has that. Opera has the stories to connect to so many of us that are so different, um, to connect us, to bring out those similarities that we'll all have. And I think that as we move forward with the productions of opera, we should definitely think about promoting new works, more stories that reflect today's time. And I think that will be another great way to kind of just um, get more, more of our people from our communities involved and interested. Because like any other industry, you have to change, you have to evolve. And we've seen that has been the, the model of, of success that you have to evolve with time. Um, and so we're, we're nothing special, you know, that we can't evolve or we don't have to evolve. Uh, we are still the same industry, a beautiful industry that shows so much of so much beauty through art itself. But we want to continue to, you know, honor those traditions of these old productions and past productions of Mozart and, and Verdi and, and Puccini want to yeah, continue to honor those, but as well also have things that people can now, everyday people can relate to, you know, and maybe even putting people in costumes that look like 2020 or 1995. Um, simple things like that go a long way with inviting new demographics into the world. Because the common misconception about opera is that it's for the elites. And I have certain family members in my in my life that's like, oh, you sing opera now. Oh, you rich. Or, you know, you making big money. Or you with the you with the high rollers and high flies, what they call it. And uh, <laughs> it's like, no, I mean, opera's for everybody. Opera's for everybody. So we have to start changing that misconception that it's only for a certain amount of people, for a certain group of people. And that the fact that it's for actually everyone that walks this earth. 
Amen. <laughs> yeah, you know, Alan Michael, just listening to you speak so passionately about opera having the stories, you know, the stories of life, of heartbreak, of love and difficulty. Um, it brings me right to my next question, which th that may be the answer. You may have already answered it, but I want to ask both of you, what drives and sustains you as ambassadors for this art form? My my passion for opera um, comes stems from my grandparents. And the look on my grandfather's face, watching me sing for the very first time, was something that you couldn't get back if you paid $50 billion for it. I mean, it was a priceless moment that I always cherish. And Morris helped me remember, and I've always realized it, but he helped me remember that, you know what, your grandfather worked so hard and sacrificed so much for you to do something extraordinary. Not something simple, not something that anybody could do, but something extraordinary. And opera is that extraordinary thing that that ties me to my place here on earth, right? I, I do other things too as well, but I have a special connection with opera that I have with my grandparents uh, because they've always been so supportive of me through the years. I mean, could you imagine any other, you know, kids saying, hey, Mom, Dad, I want to be fill in the blank with some type of art. You know, I want to be a painter. I want to be a musician. I want to be anything, of that, a singer, anything of that nature. And the parents' response is, okay, tell us what you need, and we got you. Not the, um, are you sure? Um, do you want to, you know, what about, what about being a lawyer or a doctor or something like that? No, that was never their response. And it was a journey that I started with them. Opera was a journey that I started with them. And obviously I can't, I can't, you know, I'm not going to be able to, uh, they won't be able to be with me till the end of this journey. But I definitely want to honor them during this journey and as this journey continues. And I told them that I think this is something that I, I can really be, really be good at. And I'm going to give it, 110%, no matter what happens. And so that's the thing that just keeps me moving. You know, I can't quit because this is something that I've, I told my grandparents, it's like, look, you worked too hard for me to just give up now. You know, I mean, something catastrophic really has to happen. You know, the Lord has to be really, really clear and to be like, to say, you know what, this isn't for you, but I'm going to ride this out mainly because of my grandparents and their sacrifice to make sure that their grandson was given an opportunity to do something special like this. And so I'm not going to throw this opportunity away. I'm not going to waste it while I'm here. You know, I won't always have it. You know, my voice won't always be in working condition, I guess, if you want to call it that way. So I want to take advantage of this opportunity and make the most of it. And if the most is singing uh, overseas only one time, or if the most is, you know, Minnesota Opera, this is it, you know, after this year, boom, that was it. Um, that's it for my singing career. So be it. So be it. And I will be okay because I've given it my all. I'm going to continue to do it until I can't do it anymore. So that's, uh, I mean, that's pretty much what keeps, keeps me going. Yeah. Thank you for that, Alan Michael. 
Uh, Morris, what about you in our closing moments here together? Uh, what is it that drives and sustains you as an ambassador for opera? Opera is not my job, it's my calling. I believe that I found exactly what I was put on this earth to do and to whom much is given, much is required. I've been very blessed in this game, in this business, to make many firsts and many appearances on many stages. And I continue to do so, even though we're having an awful time right now. And I pray for all my artists, friends, and family, but I, to much, who much is given, much is required. And, you know, I feel like it is not just a way to earn a paycheck for me. It is what I'm intended to do. So I'm going to use my voice and my talent to do the job on stage and use my voice and talent to do the job backstage and offstage as well to continue to preach this art form, to continue to introduce others to it, to continue to support this art form, and to continue to drive change because we need change in this business. If we're going to survive, uh, we need change in this business because it's the right thing to do. And I'm here for it. I'm here for it all. And I'm, uh, I'm very appreciative, like Alan Michael said, for the Lord to have given me this opportunity to do something very special. Uh, there are not very many people on this earth that can do what we do. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to take that for granted. My mother said, if you don't use your talent, you'll lose it. So I'm going to use it not just to bring beautiful music on stage, but to also make a difference. And that's what drives me. Oh, and I got to pay for college in a few years, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have to say, what an inspiring conversation. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Morris Robinson, Mr. Alan Michael Jones. Thanks for being with us today. You're welcome. Y'all take care. So, yeah, thanks for having us. We also want to thank Jake Neer for his help in producing today's podcast and to recognize and thank our sponsors, the National Endowment for the Humanities, DTE Energy Foundation, MGM Grand Detroit, Cadillac and the William Davidson Foundation for their support. And of course, we want to thank you for tuning in to today's Opera Here podcast and for taking part in our MOT at Home initiative. Keep checking back for more podcasts, performances, playlists, blog posts, and more. To find more information on MOT at Home or to learn more about other ways to connect, visit our website at michiganopera.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again to everyone listening, and we can't wait until the next time we see you at the opera. Yeah.